the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Righteousness of Christ's Disciples, next on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. The Ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace. Hello and welcome to our broadcast. We're continuing our survey of Luke today, chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. We'll also spend a little time in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And we're focusing on the righteousness of Christ's disciples and the lessons that we can learn from it all. Join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. The righteousness of Christ's disciples. What is our righteousness supposed to look like, beloved? Today we're going to consider the last verses in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Two verses which describe the impact of Christ's sermon on his audience in that first century. When Jesus completed this sermon, he left his audience amazed at his teachings because he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes and the other teachers of that day. They had never heard anything as powerful as this sermon. These two closing verses do not simply contain an empty epilogue to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Holy Spirit, who was the author of the Bible, inspired Matthew's words here in the seventh chapter so that we, at the conclusion of this great sermon, would be directed to the preacher rather than the sermon. Here is possibly the most famous sermon ever preached. And almost everyone, to some degree or another, has knowledge of it. And it has some appeal to everyone who hears even just a portion of it. But the real reason this sermon is given, as Matthew reminds us in these two verses, is not so we can just admire this wonderful sermon, but so that we can be drawn to and admire and worship the one who preached this sermon. Listen to these words by Arthur W. Pink. He says, Here it is made known to us the impression which our Lord's discourse produced upon its auditors or hearers. They were amazed, and well they might be. The speaker had not graduated from the rabbinical schools, nor had he been granted a preaching license by the Sanhedrin. Yet he declared... Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Then he added, For I say unto you that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you shall in no case enter in to the kingdom of heaven. He went on to declare that causeless anger, that causeless anger was incipient murder, and that those who indulged in lustful glances were guilty of adultery. He bade them, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. He made it evident that it was not merely good advice or solitary counsel that he was offering them, but rather he was issuing preemptory demands. It was as the king of righteousness he spoke. And the crowd was astonished at the matter and manner of his preaching. For he spoke with weight, a majesty, and earnestness which carried conviction. As we consider the Sermon on the Mount as a whole over the next two weeks, having gone through its various parts over the past several months, we must realize, beloved, that we shouldn't concentrate only on the beauty of Christ's diction or the perfect structure of this sermon or the impressive word pictures that he draws or the striking illustrations or the extraordinary balance both from the standpoint of the material that he presents in it and the way the material is presented. Indeed, we are never to stop even with the moral ethical, spiritual teachings of this sermon as great as they are. We must go beyond all these things as vitally and important as they are. For they focus our attention on the person of the preacher himself. And there are two main reasons for this. The first is because the authority and the power of the Sermon on the Mount is derived not from the eloquence of the sermon, nor from the material dealt with in the sermon, but from the preacher of the sermon. The sermon is powerful and is obviously given with authority because of the nature of the one who preached it. And so as we consider the words of the Sermon on the Mount... Understand that we are considering the words of the Son of God Himself. Now, many admirers of the Sermon on the Mount often forget that. You know, you can take the Sermon on the Mount out of the Bible and you can hand it to an atheist or a secularist or a Hindu or, or a Buddhist and ask them, what do you think about the words? And all of them, to one degree or another, will say, They're wonderful. I may not quite agree with some of the details, but the moral values found in that sermon are worthy of people from all religions. You see, they fail to realize that this sermon was one only God could preach. No mere man. If a man preached this sermon and said the things that Jesus said, it would be blasphemy of the most blatant sort. Only God in human flesh could have preached this sermon. Why do I say that? Well, let me give you two or three reasons. First of all, he goes through the Old Testament laws. The laws of the creator of this world. 
And then he clarifies them. He cuts away all the embellishments and the extra commentary added by those scribes and the Pharisees of that day. And he explains the true meaning of God's commandments. The commandments that the creator of the world gave us. And then he puts his clarifications and commentary of the law on par with the law of God itself. So here you have Jesus saying, I'm not simply a man trying to make my own commentary on the word of God. What I tell you in commentary and clarification is equal to the law of God itself. My word is the word of God. You see, only God could have preached this sermon unless Jesus was a total fool. And of course, we know he was not and he is not. And then there's a second thing to consider, and that is that Jesus said that he is the judge before whom everyone someday is going to have to stand. He ends the sermon by saying, If you build your life upon me and my words, then the house of your life will stand forever. Now, only God can say something like that, and it be true. He said, I'm going to be a judge, and many people will come before me on that final day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, let us in. Because we prophesied and did wonderful things in your name. And he says, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, beloved, who is the judge of the universe? It is, of course, God. And this is another proof from God's word itself that Jesus is indeed God, for only God could have preached this sermon. Moreover, in the sermon, Jesus, whether we like it or not, says... That he and he personally will determine the destiny of all men. That when you stand before God at the end of time, Jesus says, I will determine those to whom I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Or to whom I will say, come and enjoy the blessings of God because you have built your house on me. Jesus claims to be the one who determines the destinies of all men. You see, only God could have preached this sermon. So as we preach, as we read this sermon, the focus of our attention must be on the one who preached it, not simply on the sermon itself, because it gets its authority from He alone, who is the Son of God. And there's another reason why when we study the Sermon on the Mount, we must focus beyond the words to Christ. And that is because Christ himself insists on us paying attention to him in this sermon. Time and again throughout this sermon, he calls attention to himself and not just to his moral teachings. Matthew records for us in that sermon, in, in that, sermon that left the crowd astonished and amazed. And he said, if you study the words astonished and amazed in the Gospels, you will see that the writers use them to describe emotions and attitudes that human beings experienced when they were conscious, when they were conscious of standing in the very presence of the living God. 
God has manifested Himself to me. I am standing right before His face. Words like astonishment and amazement and awestruck are words that you'll find throughout the Bible to describe a person's experience and attitude when he recognizes that he is in the very presence of God. And after Jesus Christ preached the sermon, he left his audience amazed, astonished, and awestruck, conscious of the fact that as they sat in the presence of the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, they sat in the very presence of God Almighty. This, beloved, is a fundamental teaching of the Christian faith. Jesus wasn't just a man who thought he was God, nor was he a second-rate God in some sense. This man was truly man and was the creator of the world in our humanity. So when one heard Jesus, when one heard Jesus speak, he or she heard the creator of the world speak. Therefore, we must deal with him as well as his words as we would deal with the one and only living God. In fact, beloved, no one can have a relationship with God except through Christ in recognition that Christ is truly God. You see, you can believe that Jesus is a great teacher and still go to hell when you die. You can believe that Jesus is the greatest teacher that ever lived and still go to hell when you die. You can believe that Jesus, more than any other human being, approached what it means to be truly divine and go to hell when you die. Essential to saving faith by which we are accepted with God and our sins are forgiven is the recognition that Jesus Christ is fully, truly God in human flesh. There's nothing to me that more clearly teaches us that in Scripture than the fact that only God could preach a sermon as this one that we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible says that Jesus as God is the living Word of God. That is, the one means by which God reveals to mankind what is in the mind and in His heart. And Jesus, the living Word of God, is known through His spoken and written Word. So I ask you, how do you focus on Christ in this sermon? How do you focus the attention of your faith on the preacher of this sermon and not just the sermon itself? Certainly not by going out and sitting under some tree and meditating upon it. It is by focusing on the written Word of God. Because the living Word makes Himself known to us through His written word. So let's go back. Let's go back one more time and review everything that Jesus has taught us here in this sermon. And as we do, let what he has spoken in this great sermon point us and our hearts to him who spoke this great sermon. And beloved, we'll just be able to begin this sermon, this topic today, and we'll have to finish it next week. But first of all, remember what I said the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is. 
Luke didn't record it, but Matthew does in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. He says, Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of the commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see here, Jesus as God is determining your standing and position in the kingdom of God. Only God can do that. Now here's the theme, verse 20. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Only God can say that. And that's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Every time you read the Sermon on the Mount, you must do it in light of its theme and its outworking and its explanation and the illustration of that theme. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Throughout his sermon, Jesus focuses on one great point, and that is the total inadequacy of the righteousness and the good works of every human being to make them acceptable with God. Jesus emphasizes it here. You see it behind his words, and you see it expressly stated, not only in this, the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout Scripture. The total inadequacy of any acts of kindness, any good deed, any eternal actions on our part, any obedience to the law of God to make us worthy of being accepted by God at all in any way. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, who were the leaders of the church, placed their traditions written by the rabbis, such as the Talmud, at least on par with Scripture, if not at times even above it. And the children of the Pharisees were far more familiar with the oral and written rabbinical teachings than they were with the law word of God. The Pharisees' zeal for their traditions and their supplementations of the Bible modified, perverted, and subverted the whole law of God, which Jesus Christ came to vindicate. As over against the Pharisees who, taught, who thought they were defending God's law, but who, according to Jesus himself, were perverting it, Christ's own ethical teachings, he said, were an exact accord with God himself and what he had taught in the Old Testament. And Jesus came to defend, explain, confirm, and enforce God's law in his kingdom. How inadequate is the righteousness, the good deeds, the acts of kindness of the Pharisees and of any human being? Listen, every good, kind, charitable thing we do is so inadequate that it bars us from the kingdom of God. Any righteousness you perform 
will keep you out of the kingdom of God. All acts of kindness or charity that you have performed in and of yourself will keep you out of the kingdom of God. The righteousness, the acts of kindness, the good deeds that we do are all so defective that they will damn us for all eternity. That is bad. That is how bad all the good things we do are. Not only is it inadequate, not only is it ineffective, but all of our righteousness apart from Christ merely damns us. The more things we do, in an attempt to do right of ourselves, to be kind, to love, to be charitable, to be patient, apart from faith in Christ, are nothing more than nails in our coffin that will send us to hell. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is putting a blowtorch to the theology and the ethics, the doctrine and the practice of the Pharisees who thought that the only thing that is important is the external behavior, going through the right actions, thinking the right things, doing all the right things at the right time. And the whole point that Jesus is making is that we live like we live because we think like we think. Our thinking and our believing must be straight, must be according to the Word of God if our living and doing is to be straight according to the Word of God. A correct creed and law are determinative of right action and right behavior. If a person in his own mind replaces light for darkness and darkness for light... His life will correspond to what he believes. You see, my friends, it is simply not true to say that it makes no difference what a person believes if he will just do what is right. If a person's morals or judgments are perverted or not done to bring pleasure to God, no matter how zealous and sincere he is, his practice will be perverted as well. Jesus is charging the Pharisees and most human beings in our American culture with the sin of hypocrisy by saying your righteousness is totally inadequate because the standard of your righteousness is not my will and it is not based on my word. It is your own humanly derived traditions. And in following all your traditions, whether they are the traditions of your church or the traditions of your family or the traditions of your own experience, you are breaking the commandments of God. Even when you're trying to obey the commandments of God externally, you're still breaking them because your motives are all wrong. Now, how is it that a disciple's righteousness then, then surpasses and exceeds the righteousness of zealous experts in ethics and morality. The scribes and the Pharisees were considered the most knowledgeable zealots for morality in their day. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds, supersedes, 
is superior to the righteousness of these zealots for righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do. Reformedheritage.org. Real simple. Reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by. Reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB Post Mailbox four zero two, and the address is fourteen eighty four Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 